doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. There are clearly setbacks, but we are going in the right direction. And it is because of people like the people listening to the podcast. Like that is why we are able to continue to move forward. We got to address the suburban women problem because it's real. Welcome to the Suburban Women Problem, a podcast from Red, Wine, and Blue. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Amanda Weinstein. I'm Jasmine Clark. I'm Rachel Venman. And you're listening to the Suburban Women Problem. This is our last episode before we take a week off for the holidays. I can't believe how fast the weeks flew by between the election and the end of the year. And we'll have so much to talk about next year with the presidential election. Oh, yeah. But... As important as it is to look ahead, it's also valuable to look back at what women accomplished in the past and how it led us to today. So this week, we are so excited to share our conversation with Ellen Cassidy, the author of Working 9 to 5, a women's movement, a labor union, and the iconic movie. But Ellen didn't just write the book. She helped lead the actual movement. But before we get to that interview, we have to talk about some battles that women are still fighting today. Can we talk about Brittany Watts in Ohio? Hmm. Ooh, there's a lot going on. Every time I hear about this story, I get so angry. Same. Like every part of this story just drives me batty. Because why in 2023 are people dealing with this? And how in the world, like, I just don't understand. I just don't understand how we got here. I think it's a story that I can picture like a man thinks makes sense that a woman had a miscarriage and, uh, you know, instead of doing something else with what came out of her, uh, it went in the toilet, which he thought was terrible. So she got charged with uh, felony charges for abuse of a corpse after miscarrying in her home in a toilet, which is where most miscarriages happen, which I'm sure most men didn't even think about. And I think it probably would make sense until you really start to think about it. And I think for women, we're like, what are you talking about? What do you think happens in a miscarriage? She went to the hospital twice, was turned away. Where did you think she was going to have a miscarriage exactly? Or what she was going to do. now facing felony charges. I know. And I still have not seen anyone answer. What was she supposed to do? She went to the hospital twice and was turned away. No one has said what she should have done instead. I've not heard anyone say that at least. I haven't either. And so just so people are, are, are familiar with exactly what we're talking about, Brittany Watts is a black woman in Ohio who's actually facing felony charges felony charges after miscarrying in her home. Um, and from what I read of the conversation, she went back to the hospital for hemorrhaging because she was losing a lot of blood after the miscarriage. And the nurse who was consoling her also went and called the police on her and um, told the police that she showed up to the hospital uh, bleeding, but without an actual baby. And that is how this all started to unfold. And so it's, again, just really been bothering me. Um, we see what happens when we criminalize abortion. Now we're seeing what happens even with the criminalizing of miscarriage. And it's just too much. I just can't even imagine when someone is already going through something extremely hard. It's already hard. It's emotionally hard. It's physically hard. It's not something that you also want to have law enforcement get involved with just because your body did a thing. And honestly, a thing you didn't want it to do. 
So I don't know. I just have so many feelings about this. I know. They were interviewing her, I think, while she was like hooked up to an IV. And this was something the hospital told her was a non-viable fetus. They all knew it was a non-viable fetus. The autopsy results or whatever you call it said this was not a birth that happened with a live child. This was a miscarriage. And this happens quite frequently in America. There are an estimated anywhere from like, I've seen 10 to 25% of pregnancies end in miscarriage. This is a very common occurrence, which I think a lot of men never stop to question exactly what happens in a miscarriage or where it happens. And now you see a black woman being charged because she had a miscarriage, just like many, many, many women, women have miscarriages yeah. every day. Well, um, I would say most of my pregnancies ended in miscarriage, um, not to be like a Debbie Downer sad story, but I mean, that's, that's just, that's my story. That's my journey. So, um, I had early miscarriages for the most part, but you still know when you pass, um, that tissue. So also in the toilet, by the way. Um, so there's pain involved, there are contractions, your body, if it does it correctly, expels the pregnancy. If it doesn't, um, then you have to have a DNC or you can die or, you know, because you could develop infection. Yeah. A lot of people also just can't conceive of size of how this works, of what we're talking about because they're so uneducated and that's okay. But we have to try to talk about it to educate people. And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. It's uncomfortable for like who's who's lived through this. And other people just don't want to think about something so sad and so awful. And I get it. But this is where we are. We, we have to kind of talk about this. And, and then when we criminalize it, we further push it under to not talk about it. No one wants to talk about it. No one wants to be blamed for it. Just we're not even going to discuss it mm-hmm. because I don't want anything to happen from this, you know, so we are going the opposite way of helping. And my heart goes out to Brittany Watts for so many different reasons. Same. Beyond the trauma that she went through. Let's, well, I mean, yeah, that, that part is devastating. It's also, she is going through this so different than the woman in Texas because of her skin color. And I mean, I am, I'm a white woman, so I, I feel like I, I can't, I, I don't really, it's not that I can't say something. I want to be an ally and I, you know, but I, and I'm just, it's true. And it's like, it's very difficult for me to discuss because I don't know what to say or what not to say. I'm yeah. sure I'm not the only person, but no one is talking about this. Very few people. Right. Look how long it took for Washington Post. Thank you. To even do something or write something. And I feel like that was after immense pressure mm-hmm. from so many yeah. other people saying, why is Kate, uh, And I don't like to, I don't want to make it like a competition. I just think that what we need to recognize is that there are all of these stories that are happening, but only certain people's stories get the attention they deserve. What is happening to Brittany Watts is an injustice. And it really should be a very, very big story that's covered just as much as what's happening to Kate Cox down in Texas. And the reason why it should is because, again, this is something that happens to so many people. And how do you know that the person that you love and care about is not going to be the next victim of an overzealous nurse accusing you of God knows what? 
when you are just seeking care. And now all of a sudden, uh, something that's already devastating, like miscarrying is already devastating. It's not something that, you know, it's, it's hard and you don't know what to do. And there's so many emotions involved. And then to just be accused of doing something else and now being called a criminal, a felon for not knowing what to do next. And to Amanda's point, I still don't know exactly what they expected her to do. They are criminalizing something that is a natural body's reaction. This is a natural occurrence. It is devastating, but it is still a natural occurrence that they are criminalizing. And the problem, there's a lot of problems with that, but the also problem, we also have very high maternal mortality rates in this country for everyone, especially high for women of color. And this makes it worse when women of color seeking care can worry about being charged. And I know I've even been worried about when the doctor asks, like, well, when's your last menstrual cycle? I'm like, no, I'm not going to answer that. You're, you don't need that information, right? Just do the mammogram. Right. Um, you know, and I'm not going to answer that question anymore, which I don't know how that affects my care or even really why they're asking. Also, I'm not a doctor. So if your doctor tells you that I'm not giving <laughs> medical advice right now, however, I can tell you, I'm not answering that question anymore. That's none of your business, right? Because when we see natural reactions that women's bodies have being criminalized, this is going to put women's health at risk. And it is putting women's health at risk. And we also see these stories are just multiplying because when you have a lot of different rare things that can happen to a fetus and a lot of rare things that can happen to women, but you multiply that over millions of women, suddenly a bunch of rare things are no longer that rare. Exactly. And you see the stories just building and building and building where you saw the recent ABC News special where they had 18 women across 10 states shared all of their different heartbreaking journeys through pregnancy that happened post row. Mm -hmm. And in some cases where they were brought to the brink of death because yeah. they couldn't access timely health care. You have to watch this. The link is in the show notes and you, this is an absolute must watch and you need to share it with people. Um, maybe they'll watch it. Maybe they won't, but just on the off chance, you need to be sharing this story. It is kudos to ABC for doing it. And, and we need to do our part and really amplify it. Absolutely. And I think to your point, Amanda, when we talk about things being rare, people use that as, a, that as an excuse to try to take away people's rights, to try to pay, take away people's reproductive rights and say, oh, well, the, the situations that you're talking about, well, those rarely happen and we can just handle those one-offs. Um, but we need to make a law that uh, affects most pregnant people because we feel like most pregnant people you know, if they're having an abortion or if they're doing anything other than what we feel the body should be doing, it's because, you know, they're a bad person and they deserve to be criminalized. When in reality, um, rare is not that rare when you talk about how many women are having babies and getting pregnant all the time. And I still, I mean, Amanda, you've been bringing this point a lot. And I just want to reiterate when Obama first came out with ACA and there was this whole thing about how it was going, there were going to be death panels and everyone's like, Oh no, not the death panels. We cannot have this. When in actuality, the actual 
policies that are being put forth by the GOP right now, today in 2023, and probably going into 2024, because for some reason they're not getting the message. These policies are legitimately death panels. And we have this ABC Mm -hmm. News special Mm -hmm. to show exactly what that looks like when a team of hospital administrators and lawyers Mm -hmm. and literally everyone except for you and your doctor and your family are deciding your fate. Like that's insane mm-hmm. for a free country. It just is. Like, what are we even doing as a country right now? I don't understand. I can't imagine why our maternal mortality rates are so high. Can't figure that one out. Yes. It's crazy. It's insane. You know what I think about this is like, you know how we know that that immigrants are uh, people who are not immigrants, people who are not here legally are not willing to go get medical care, even though it shouldn't be the case. Um, because the Hippocratic Oath, like care should be offered regardless of someone's immigration status in the country or why they're here. Do no harm. Yep. yep. But, but this is, this is the same thing. This is criminalizing. This is keeping women from seeking care. And um, what would I think if when I had my third miscarriage and I had to go say it was my third early miscarriage, um, you know, what, what would they, what would they do or say to me? And that has, that has occurred to me more than once. Mm-hmm. Would they blame you? Would they yeah. want to investigate you? Absolutely. We, we actually talked about this when we were passing our um, our abortion ban in Georgia. Um, I was so devastated by it. But we had people stand up and say, this could lead to them criminalizing miscarriage. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, stop being hyperbolic. Stop yeah. exaggerating. Stop making up things. And now it's like, Told you so. (laughs) We were not lying. These things happen and bam, here's your proof. Like Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. is real. And so, you know, again, like to your point, Rachel, like, you know, maybe they're like, yeah, well, yeah, of course, like miscarriages happen. But if you have all these men making all these decisions when they've never had a miscarriage before and they don't really know much about it and they don't know what it feels like, where it happens, how it makes you, they don't know any of these things. They're just like, yeah, uh, we're going to check off this box, six box, six box. And if we don't like any of the boxes that we check off, then we're going to call the police. But for a long time, women didn't know either because we felt such shame around miscarriage that we had done something wrong. Or even if we knew we didn't do something wrong, there was still this shame that our body didn't do what it was supposed to do or that we wanted it to do. And a lot of women didn't talk about miscarriages. And I think recently I've seen, at least with my friends, you know, women who have started to talk about their miscarriages and even hearing the data that, no, this is very, very common has, I think, made a lot of, at least the friends I've talked to, feel more comfortable sharing their stories to know that it is very common. But what you see with criminalizing and all of these actions is trying to put the shame back in there, mm-hmm. right? It's trying to add shame. And you it's usually a group of men, you know, trying to put the shame. And again, now we have the Supreme Court, you know, now deciding, uh, you know, the fate of Miffy Pristone access, right? And so we have, at least we have some women on the Supreme Court now. However, we have also a lot of men. Uh, deciding something for women of whether they should have access to this and whether it should be done. There's a lot of shoulding. I'm I'm a little tired of all the shoulding from a bunch of men. And it's all like based on, you know, them saying, oh, well, there are side effects as if literally every freaking medicine (laughs) out there has. I mean, are they going to ban ibuprofen at this point? (laughs) Like what? It's always the medicine that is for the 
reproductive rights for women and medicine that only women will be taking. And actually, it's not only women. Mifepristone can be used for other things um, as well. But for the most part, it is used for induced um, like at home abortion. Um, what is what do they call that? I can't medical abortion. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. Medical abortion. But they're they're trying to criminalize this thing because it won't affect them. It won't affect the men who have decided that this is bad, even though literally I can think of, I can think of right now, I could probably list 100 medications that have some side effect that someone might not like. And if we're going to, if we're, if this is the precedent we're going to set, then um, I'm here to tell you, guess what? Viagra also has side effects. It really does. (laughs) We're not, we're not, having any debates about whether or not we should have Viagra on the market. That's not even what it was supposed to be for. It's supposed to be for blood pressure. But then it's like, oh, it helps with this thing. And we can keep it for that. But then they want to go after this other medication. So I'm just kind of a little fed up. But I am also um, hopeful that as these things happen, it opens other people's eyes to like, this is a bigger problem. Mm-hmm. And it might even affect you. And I think there's a lot of people out there that really didn't think that these things could or would affect them. But when you see stories like Brittany Watts or when you watch the special, like what was on ABC, you realize, yeah, actually, this is a lot closer to home than I thought it was. A hundred percent. I live with one of those people who didn't understand and still he's still it's like totally on our side. But he sees stories. And when he watched the ABC special, he really saw it in a different way. And it was, again, top of mind. So that's why I think these are things are important for people all across the spectrum, um, that it's important to see these stories and to understand uh, that they are more common. Um, and, you know, to be fair, Alex has been right with me the whole time. He's, he's, he knows our story. He lived our story. And still, um, you think that this wouldn't happen in the United States. And it shouldn't happen because we should have everyone should have access to the best healthcare in the world that exists here. But it's, it's unfortunately, you know, it continues to happen. All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we are so excited to share our interview with Ellen Cassidy. We hope you're having a safe and happy holiday season. Here at Red Wine and Blue, we're taking this opportunity to celebrate everyday heroes, from our pod hosts to our amazing guests to you. We wouldn't have so many victories to celebrate from this year's election if it wasn't for your support. And now we're making it easier than ever to be a superhero for our sisterhood. To make a donation to our year-end giving campaign or to learn more, visit pod.redwine.blue/give or click the link in the show notes. Welcome back, everyone. Ellen, thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. So you not only wrote the book, Working 9 to 5, you helped build the 9 to 5 movement to win fair treatment for working women. Could you tell us how that all began? Yes. 50 years ago, on a cold December morning, I was one of 10 women office workers who fanned out across downtown Boston 
to pass out the first issue of the nine to five newsletter. And the front page said something like this. We keep Boston's businesses and institutions running smoothly. Without us, they would grind to a halt. Yet we are underpaid and undervalued. And that's how my book, Working 9 to 5, begins with the 10 of us shivering on street corners. So I was 22 years old. I was working as a clerk typist at Harvard University. It was my first job out of college. And a group of us started sitting around in a circle and talking about our jobs. We talked about low pay, unequal pay, training men to be our own supervisors, and having to do favors, all kinds of favors for our bosses, the lack of respect. One woman said, They call us girls until the day we retire without pension. And I think it all hit home for us one day when a student walked into the office, looked one of us straight in the eye and said, isn't anybody here? Well, I'm here. Can't you see me? Oh, wow. Yeah. So I wrote my book, Working 9 to 5, to convey what it was like to work in a tiny beehive of an office for 12 hours a day, uh, to what it was like to see women join together. Uh, grow together, win together. And I wanted to write the kind of book I was hungry for when I started out as an organizer. Oh, wow. I love that. What you tell, you tell a story so, so well. I mean, let's just jump to it. Your movement inspired the famous movie Nine to Five with Jane Bonda and Dolly Parton. I'm going to try not to sing working nine to five too much. Same. But it I'm is, refraining. In, it is yeah. playing in my head right now, just so everyone's aware. I'm like listening to it. I listened to it this morning. It's on my workout playlist. And so I listened to it just this morning. What was it like seeing your work on the big screen as actually as a comedy? Well, it was quite something. Um Jane Fonda knew one of our organizers from the anti-war, anti-Vietnam War movement. Mm-hmm. And she came to us and she said she wanted to make a movie about the concerns of office workers. Now, at that time, office workers were virtually invisible. You know, uh, one in three working women was an office worker. The clerical workforce was just expanding. It was booming. But nobody thought about us. When they thought worker, they thought about a man in a hard hat wielding a wrench. And that was even true for women themselves. You know, we didn't see ourselves as as workers, as really important parts of the economy, but that was starting to change. And there was sort of a quiet rumbling in the clerical workforce and Jane Fonda copped to that. And she brought her team to meet with our members and they popped a question we had never thought to ask in all the recruitment lunches we had done with individual office workers all over town. And that question was, have you ever fantasized about doing in your boss? <laughs> so there was, there was a moment of stunned silence. And then the room just exploded because it turned out everybody had. And all those <laughs> went right into the script. And the movie, Jane Fonda was very intent on making the movie into a comedy. And she did. But it told the truth. Now, in the movie, as you may know, three women get together. That's Jane and Lily Tomlin and Dolly Parton. And it becomes necessary for them to kidnap their boss, who the New York Times film critic described as a fine lunatic villain, a mini-brained tomcat. So once this boss is gone, the funny thing is that no one really notices. And the three women quickly institute a slew of worker-friendly policies like job sharing and flex time and an on-site uh, child care center and come to find out the company runs better than it did before. 
And the movie was a huge box office success, 1980. Women office workers had never seen ourselves as the main characters on the big screen. We're the heroes. Right. Yeah. And the atmosphere in the theaters was just electric. So there's this one scene where Jane Fonda, um, early on in her tenure at the company, she's like new to the company. She's ushered into a room with a huge photocopy machine and she presses a button and all these papers come flying out of different orifices in the, in the machine and her lip starts to tremble and papers are flying all over the floor and women would stand up in the theater and holler, push the stop button. <laughs> they knew. So it was our movement. That, that inspired the movie. But the movie really gave our movement a huge boost. And after that mm. movie came out, we had won the debate. And now it was time to consolidate our power. I love that laughing and a comedy helped move a very serious movement with some very serious issues. I love that we can laugh and do good with laughing. That is a great story to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were a little leery about this because we were quite earnest people. We, you know, really took our work really seriously. Now we had a huge capacity for fun also, but we were nervous that this movie would turn out poking fun at the wrong people, but it really did not. You know, you, the target is on the boss, the way our target was on the boss. Um, one example of the kind of thing we did was um, we announced that we were holding a bad boss contest and we invited women to nominate their bosses. So entries poured in. Oh, I love this. And the TV cameras rolled as we <laughs> confronted the boss who had asked his secretary to sew up a hole in his pants while he was wearing them. Oh, no. Ew. So many things wrong there. But if I had the needle. <laughs> <laughs> we presented him with his own sewing kit. Um, then we went to the boss who uh, had fired his secretary for bringing him a corned beef sandwich on white bread instead of rye. And we went after the boss who handed his secretary a package, a suspicious looking package and said, this might be a letter bomb. And you know, his next words, right? You open it. Oh, wow. That's insane. But I love that y'all highlighted those things. That's, Mm -hmm. that's amazing. Yeah. Things began to change. Countless Bosses began making their own coffee. Oh, wow. Oh, the the horror. (laughs) Oh, so Ellen, I know your opposition tried to stop your organizing efforts on so many occasions, right? So a lot of the things you're talking about now, right, to many, especially younger generations are like, of course, this makes sense. Who would disagree with any of what you're saying, right? Of course, you shouldn't have to sew your boss's pants while he's wearing them. But Back then, right, people were trying to stop your organizing efforts. So you had to come up with some clever tactics of your own. I would love to hear more about that. Yeah. So you're absolutely right. There was tremendous opposition from employers. It was easy to find women who were eager to get involved. But employers, you know, there was little or no history of collective action in the office workforce when we got started. And people were scared and they were rightfully scared. Uh, when we handed out our leaflets in front of the big skyscrapers, there were supervisors waiting inside the revolving doors to snatch those leaflets out of women's hands. And so people could not stand up in their cubicle and go talk to somebody across the room without their supervisor looking and seeing. 
it was scary. So we had to get creative and we had to dream up ways for women to take action without losing their jobs. And one of the ways we did that was the Bad Boss Contest, which was anonymous and uh, people could report this really important information about what was going on in the office without losing their jobs. And we would hand out uh, leaflets outside, surveys outside of the big office buildings, and uh, people could fill them out anonymously. People became whistleblowers. They told us what was going on in the executive suites. And this became uh, particularly true uh, when we started our union, which was called District 925, 925. It was like a play on the nine to five logo and brand. Um, and uh, for example, one clever thing we came up with was that um, uh, in the negotiating at the University of Washington, uh, we decided to make Tampax machines a major issue at the bargaining table. And yes, we did want more Tampax machines at the work site. But the real reason we kept talking about Tampax was that every time we used the word Tampax, some of the management negotiators got so flustered that they had to leave. Them. Oh, they squirmed. I can I can see them in their seats right now. I can see them squirming. I love it. This still happens today, by the way, on the house floor when I'm in there. And I'm like, guys, we can say period. It's like a thing. It's why are we why are we not allowed to say period? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> So, um, you know, there is a lot of um, women out there right now organizing, especially after the fall of Roe v. Wade and things like that. And so um, I would love to hear from you about what lessons um, can we learn from the women organizing in the past that can help us fight today? Because the fight continues. It might be a different fight, but we're still fighting. So do you have any hard and fast lessons you'd like to share with our current uh, activists? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I love what you're saying because just as we nine to fivers were inspired to break new ground by those who came before us, my hope is that those who are striving for fair treatment and a better world today will learn from the nine to five story, draw inspiration from it, read my book, but then go on to forge their own path. And that's really one of my main lessons that I drew because we were 22 years old. We didn't know what we were doing, mm -hmm. but we kept at it and we kept our focus on the target, the boss. And if one thing didn't work, we tried another thing. We tried to be more like a sailboat, kind of sensing the wind and the current than like a motorboat that was just going straight in one line. Oh, I love that. We had to listen so hard to how women were talking about what they were concerned about. You know, we had a lot of misconceptions. We thought women were going to just band together just like that, storm into their boss's offices, demand what they, you know, people wouldn't do that. And so we had to step back, think about what are people telling us? What vocabulary are they using? Lots and lots of women told us that they didn't consider themselves feminists. And we were a little taken aback, but we thought, okay, we can live with that. And we didn't let vocabulary stand in the way of solidarity. So um, I guess my two main, well, I, you know, it's hard to pick, but, uh, you know, keep at it. Um, learn from the past. Uh, listen really hard. Keep trying. If one thing doesn't work, try something else and be flexible. Um, you know, don't have one main thing that you've got to, got to do and keep the target on the boss, on the 
if you want to call it the enemy or, you know, the, the person who can solve the people who can solve the problem. The right. Yeah. Because there's, there's a lot to be won. There's a lot still to be done. You know, it's harder to be a worker today than it was 50 years ago. I like that a lot. I love that you're talking about clerical workers. So I have to say, so I uh, used to teach a women in the economy class and I would play the nine to five song and what I would have a little song for every class period that kind of went with it. And we would have a, a day where we talked about clerical workers, because what a lot of people don't realize is one, as you mentioned, they were a very large share of the workforce for women, but they really changed attitudes about women and work, right? So before we had a lot of clerical workers, most people assumed that one, either women shouldn't work, or if women were working, it must be because their husband was a poor provider and, oh, that poor husband and that poor family where this woman has to work. But clerical work was really a way that was slightly more friendly to women who were married or women who had children. Uh, and when you had work that was available to women, and at that time it was clerical work, it changed the attitudes about the possibility that women could work, just seeing women working. And what that did is it opened the door for women to then become lawyers and doctors and economists and microbiologists and so many different things out there that you see, you can very like clearly see when you look at this evolution of how that opened a door, which opened another door. And it's just a very cool story for my students to hear of how important it was and how you can kind of see that the steps that, you know, you made in the nine to five movement, how it has then progressed to, you know, we're definitely still fighting fighting today for things like childcare, the things that you mentioned in the movie of like, you know what, it would actually, I love that it would actually work better if we had something, you know, like childcare. So I also know, like, we talk a lot about diversity as being important in a labor movement. Like you talked a lot about listening to all of different viewpoints, you know, meeting people where they're at. So did you experience any kind of pushback when you're trying to listen to all of these different people? And how did you deal with it? Yeah, um, you make a really good point because at the time we got started, um, the clerical workforce was amazingly diverse. It had people who had professional, you know, college degrees who were expecting to rise up. And uh, eventually, you know, many years later, women were able to rise up from clerical jobs. But there were also people who, for whom a clerical job was like their dream and they, no one in their family had ever gotten to work in such a nice, clean place. The shock was the pay, which was less than for factory work. But all these women looked at each other and thought, we're in the same boat and we can make common cause. So um, diversity was something that in the Boston, when we got started in Boston, the workforce in the office, downtown office workforce was mostly like 90 plus, plus, plus percent white. Um and we realized that when we were hearing from women in other cities, that there was really potential to expand nationwide. And we did that. And we targeted cities with a diverse clerical workforce like Baltimore, Cleveland, um, Milwaukee, Atlanta. And soon we had built an actual multiracial organization of working women. And I am so proud of that. And it didn't just happen. It took conscious work. We really had to uh, be very intentional about making sure that we uh, promoted leaders, um, staff who were of all races that would reflect the actual content of the clerical workforce. And uh, we paired black and white leaders and, and staff together. And especially in our union organizing, um, we often encountered a situation where, for example, there was one 
uh, community college that had a white campus, a black campus, and a mixed campus. So what did we do? Did we send our, our black organizers only into the black campus? No, we didn't. We made clear that all our organizers had the back of our organization. And we built these huge uh, organizing committees, like 50 women strong. And people, I think, really, really treasure the experiences that we had uh, working side by side with people we might not have known before, um, you know, multiracial experiences, multi-class experiences, multi-age experiences. And it was really something that we all treasure about the nine to five years. I love that so, so, so much. I cannot wait to read your book. I ordered it while we're talking. I'm not going to lie. Um, Multitasking. Okay. That's what women do. <laughs> I mean, you are an absolute delight, Ellen. Thank you so much for talking to us. And I cannot wait to read your book and hopefully write something about it. Actually, I'm just, I'm so excited and completely inspired. I, I think, you know, we, we need to look forward oftentimes by looking back. And I think you have given us such, because like oftentimes we just feel like we have to reinvent the wheel, but there's so much to learn. I can already tell that I'm going to learn so much from this book, from things that you have already done and really, really great advice. So I want to read it. I want to talk to my daughter about it. I want to write about it. I'm so excited. Thank you for coming and joining us. Really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen. Welcome back, everyone. Oh, my goodness. I just loved talking to her. She is absolutely precious. And I have to tell you just a quick story. Um, so we were having dinner and I was telling um, Alex and Ellie the story about how she, you know, was in her office and someone came in and said, what? No one's here? She's like, uh, yeah, I'm here. Just FYI. And Alex was like, what do you mean? Um, you know, he was sort of like, I don't know. He didn't quite he didn't get, get it. it. He didn't get yeah. like what was wrong no. with, yeah. with the story. Yeah. Oh, and, poor Alex. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Bless his heart. And Ellie was like, I would have said, oh, okay. Well, why don't you come back? Can I make an appointment for you at never 30? <laughs> and so that, that's the best. I love that. She immediately got it. And um, yes, yeah, so come back at never 30. You can have your meeting with the only people who matter. <laughs> But look, I, I just, I love this. I cannot wait to read her book. And um, it's, it's important to talk about where we've come from. I think especially as we go into 2024, is it perfect? No. Have we made great strides? Yes. And let's latch on to that. And the power of what happens and the strides we can make when we come together for a common cause. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I would just add on to that, like, let's learn from what has worked yes. and continue mm -hmm. to do those things. When Ellen talked about her story and she talked about like, you know, just getting started and, you know, how it kind of just, it didn't start as like this huge thing. It started small, which is, hey, guess what? 
a lot of what we talk about right here on the suburban women problem. And so these things work. Like we have a formula. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We might have to, uh, you know, fix it up a little bit, change it a little bit, maybe make some tweaks here and there. But at the end of the day, we don't have to reinvent the wheel as a whole. The wheel is there and we just have to take, you know, the lessons from what's already been done. So that's what I love because I feel like we are on the right track. Mm-hmm. I, I I echo your sentiments. We are not where we were, but we are also not where we're going. We are still on that route. We're still on that journey. And a part of that is learning, you know, what works, what doesn't work, employing what works and, you know, keeping the, keeping uh, the progress in the right direction. Yep. Um, doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. They're clearly setbacks, but we are going in the right direction. And it is because of people like the people listening to the podcast. Like that yeah. is why we are able to continue to move forward. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. All right. So before we go, we have to share our toast to joy, um, our last toast to joy of 2023. Um, So, Rachel, what is your toast to joy for today? So actually, Jasmine, I was I was texting you this morning um, about this. My toast to joy is um, I have a lot of friends uh, who have seniors this year in high school. And I think you have a senior as well. Yes, I do. (laughs) It is. So you you understand this. It's it is a tricky time. Uh, you know, they're getting college college applications, getting some feedback, and it's not always what they want to hear, even for the most qualified students. But I am just so blessed to have friends who are able to have perspective, even in their their very well qualified child application was denied or dismissed or deferred, or there's like a whole catalog of terms, by the way. <laughs> right. Um, the lingo. <laughs> yes. And, but the, even in their disappointment that they can be happy for others, even in their disappointment, genuine happiness, even in their disappointment, they can see that um, it's great that other people got an opportunity that even their child would have wanted, but maybe someone else, you know, to be happy for them. And I just, love that I have such grounded friends who um, also are showing me because we'll be there soon enough uh, with, with our daughter. And it's really nice to see that. So to all the parents out there of seniors who are in the middle of the slog, like, just- you know, you, you have the, pers- <laughs> it is, but you know, the, like we have the perspective. It's just whether or not we apply it. Like, you yeah. know, we, we have the perspective of saying, okay, we know that this is like they're 18, like this decision is, you know, it's, it's huge to them. And it's huge, but it's not like you're choosing someone to marry. I mean, you know, this (laughs) is like your life can like be great, even if you don't even get your first five choices, you can still go on to have a great education and do great things and be very happy at the school where you end up. But it is, it's always hard to see your child upset or, you know, disappointed. But I, I love that I, that my friends are not like super crazy. I'm just probably they're my friends because they, cause I don't have like very little tolerance for that. And I'm not really like that myself. So, um, it would be hard, but you know, like Jasmine, you, I think you told me you were choosing for a fellowship and there were 50 really well qualified applicants for 12 spots. Oh my gosh. Yes. 
Yes. And that's when I really got the perspective of how difficult it must be to be at a highly sought after university where you're going to get probably hundreds, if not thousands of really, really qualified people, but you can only let in this number of people. So there were like 50 applications. We had 12 slots, y'all. So that meant that there were 38 people that were very, very, very qualified that are now, um, you know, probably questioning our decision. Well, how come this person got in and I didn't get in? So I'm glad that your friends are able to recognize that no matter where they go, they're probably going to thrive and do amazing. And uh, you don't have to actually have a a prescription for your entire life at the age of 18. (laughs) And like, yes, that is true. You can there, you can, if you do, it probably won't work. Yeah, exactly. So you can like have a loose plan, but it doesn't have to be so rigid that if something doesn't go that exactly according to that plan, like everything is ruined. I promise you, if I, had known that when I was 18, I'd probably be a lot uh, better off, uh, a lot more sane now. But, you know, things happen. And uh, a lot of times when you think that you really wanted to do this thing, you do something else and you realize, actually, I'm really glad I did this something else. So um, I love that. So my toast to joy is actually, um, I got an award recently. I um, was awarded the Rising Star Award for the Future Caucus. And so um, the Future Caucus is interesting because it's a caucus of young legislators, mostly millennials and Gen Zers. Um, uh, all of us are under 45. And the goal of this caucus, it's bipartisan, and the goal is to find places where we can agree and try to work on things together, especially on issues that are important to young people. And so uh, I'm the co-chair in Georgia. And, you know, when you're working and you just kind of got your head down and you're working, you don't really think that anyone's paying any attention. And so if I had not gotten this award, I would not have thought anything of it. But when I got the phone call that I got this award, I started doing an inventory of like, I wonder why they chose me. And I do think that I'm very deserving of the award, but I also, it also made me realize how much I never really expect anyone to be paying attention mm-hmm. to what I'm doing. And I'd never really realized that there are people that are watching and there are people that are proud of me. Um, and so that was just one of those moments where I was like, oh, people actually do care about the things that I do. So I uh, think that's a good place. Too bad. Uh, Amanda had to jump off. She's a busy suburban mom, just like a lot of you all. So she's not able to give us her toast to joy today. Um, but we do want to say thank you so much to everyone for joining us. And just a reminder, there's only one week left to donate to Red, Wine & Blue's year-end giving campaign. Um, you can support by going to pod.redwine.blue slash give. We'll be taking next week off for the holidays. So we'll see you again in 2024 for the first week of January. Have a safe and happy new year. And thanks for listening to the Suburban Women Problem. The Suburban Women Problem was created by Red Wine and Blue. 
Our producer and editor is Amy Thorstensen. Our project manager is Lindsay Quist, and our editorial assistant is Abigail Martin. For more information about upcoming events and trainings, or to learn more about Red Wine and Blue, follow us on social media or at www.redwine.blue.